Hello everyone, today is April 19th, and if we're a day late, that means we really care about this episode, and this is The Delve. Thank you to everyone joining us today. Really happy to have you listen in. Today we are sharing an interview I have with the Los Angeles Police Department about defunding the police and what that means to them. But before we get to the LAPD, I want to start this episode where I think is most appropriate, tracing the history of policing in America. We at the Delve have been brainstorming for this episode for weeks. And so yesterday, I had one idea for how this episode would begin and didn't think about reviewing the history of police at all. And then I started thinking about whether there perhaps was some sinister or weird history to policing. And boy, oh boy, it's weird indeed. So let's start where the story of policing begins, based on the research we were able to do. And and I will totally stand corrected if it starts somewhere different or, or even more weirder than this. According to research firm Insider Intelligence, before formal policing was a thing, the colonies actually had a night watch. The first one was established in Boston in the 1630s, while New York followed up with their own in the 1650s. But that was up north. A little further down south, policing was a little different. The first form of policing in the south was called slave patrol in the Carolina colonies. It started in 1704. You can obviously imagine what they patrolled. The slave patrols lasted until the Civil War and eventually morphed into the Ku Klux Klan. Back up north in the 1800s, cities like Boston and New York saw a huge influx of immigrants from Germany and Ireland. These new settlers clashed with the generational Americans and crime began to rise. Local governments developed police forces and by the 1880s, Pretty much every major city had a police force. The 1960s marked a turning point in American policing. African Americans began to challenge police brutality. They began to challenge second-class treatment and racial profiling. And police, mainly in the South, responded ferociously. Another turning point was in 1999, when police were called to respond to an active shooter at Columbine High School. This marked the beginning of the era of mass shootings, and police would have to respond to them now. Then came 9-11, and police departments would have to dedicate more resources to counterterrorism measures. With this pivot towards terrorist threats, police departments were militarized, and some communities saw an increase in racial profiling. And this brings us to the 21st century. In 2002, former Representative John Conyers said, Since September 11th, our nation has engaged in a policy of institutionalized racial and ethnic profiling. The American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, later agreed with Representative Conyers in a 2009 report. They wrote, The practice of racial profiling by members of law enforcement at the federal, state, and local levels remains a widespread and pervasive problem throughout the United States, 
impacting the lives of millions of people in African American, Asian, Latino, South Asian, Arab, and Muslim communities. This was the era of New York City's stop and frisk policy, which allowed officers to stop and pat down anyone they found suspicious. The majority of people detained were black and brown. This policy was later reformed in 2013. Then in 2014, an incident was caught on camera, sparking a national outcry. Eric Gardner was arrested on suspicion of selling illegal cigarettes. He was put into a chokehold and burrowed into the ground. Eleven times he said, I can't breathe. Eleven times. He died. There were protests throughout the country. That same year, Michael Brown was killed unarmed in Ferguson, Missouri. And then there was another un unarmed police killing. And another. And another. And then in 2020, George Floyd was arrested. And Officer Derek Chauvin, who's now on trial, kneeled on his neck for eight minutes. As we all know, this sparked global protests and calls began to grow for police to be defunded, eradicated, abolished. Now, in my personal opinion, I believe we need police. They are essential to protecting our communities. However, I think police are woefully unprepared for the challenges they face daily. On average, it takes 13 to 19 weeks to complete training at a police academy, branding someone with unparalleled power, lethal power, in under six months. Meanwhile, barber training takes about 10 months. An associate's degree takes two years, a bachelor's four, a law degree up to seven. Once again, I think police are woefully unprepared for the challenges they face, and we're seeing the consequences of that. And I can definitely understand why communities would want to punish police departments for their behavior. If people are scared that you're going to kill them for a traffic violation, what's going on here? If you're actually killing people during a stop for a traffic violation, what's going on here? I think we need to have a radical reevaluation about the American police system including use of force, what are actual threats, consequences to police who inappropriately use lethal force, and who are the police actually protecting, and who are they actually serving. Something about this has become corrupted, or perhaps it was always corrupted and, and just never fixed. Because so often there's more than one cop at these horrendous incidents. Multiple cops watched Eric Gardner scream, I can't breathe. 11 times. Multiple watched Derek Chauvin kneel on George Floyd for eight minutes. Why aren't they stepping in? Trevor Noah released a video a few days ago speaking to this. And here's a clip. We don't see a mass uprising of police saying, let's root out these people. We don't see videos of police officers stopping the other cop from pushing an old man at a Black Lives Matter protest or from beating up a kid in the street with a baton. We don't see that. So my question is, where are the good apples? And honestly, I believe we don't see them not because there are no good people on the police force. I think there are many people who are good on the police force. That's why they join, because they want to do good. But I think it's because they themselves know that if they do something, they're going against the system. The system is more powerful than any individual. The system in policing 
is doing exactly what it's meant to do in America. And that is to keep poor people in their place. Who happens to be the most poor in America? Black people. You monetize them, you imprison them, which monetizes them again. It's a system. It's not broken. It's working the way it's designed to work. And once you realize that, I feel like you get to a place where you go, oh, we're not dealing with bad apples. We're dealing with a rotten tree that happens to grow good apples. But for the most part, the tree that was planted is bearing the fruit that it was intended to. Now let's get to this interview. For the record, this isn't a police bashing interview. It's an accountability episode. The LAPD doesn't do a lot of interviews, so I'm very grateful and, and I hope and I believe it was a learning experience for all of us. We spoke for over an hour, but due to time constraints, we edited this piece. I had the opportunity to speak with both Deputy Chief Tingarides and Police Administrator Lopez about what defunding the police means to them. I'll also be joined by a member of my production team to unpack all of this after the interview. Take a listen. Welcome to the Delve. Officers, if you could introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do and, and all that good stuff. Well, I'll start with myself. So my name is Joe Lopez and I am the new civilian assistant commanding officer for the Community Safety Partnership Bureau. I am a commanding officer under the leadership of Deputy Chief Imada Tangarides. And I am responsible for the community engagement component of the new CSPB Bureau, the budget, uh, community programming, everything that pertains to the engagement piece that happens outside of the actual law enforcement um, piece that is done by the sworn officers. Okay. And my name is Amada Tingarides, and I have been with the Los Angeles Police Department for 26 years, and I am the sworn to the counterpart civilian. I am hmm. the sworn commanding officer of the Community Safety Partnership Bureau. It's um, interesting when you hear Joel introduce himself and think about the fact that we have a civilian assigned as a commanding officer to help um, implement and create this public health approach to working in communities, uh, working together is quite fascinating and right. coincides with uh, some of the conversations going on right now across the country about law enforcement working together with uh, civilians and community to make change. All right, so I, I have a lot of questions and I'm just gonna jump right in. When you hear this phrase, defunding the police, what does that mean to you? What do you hear when people say that? One of the things that I wanted to say about this whole narrative of defunded police, it's, it's punitive. It's been very punitive. It hasn't been based on, usually when you talk about defunding a program or, gosh, when you go back to the days of Enron or when you go back to the looking at, you know, municipal governments that mismanage their funding or that you find corruption in, there's always this punitive move to defund or to remove funding. And so this whole national narrative of defunded police punitive. It wasn't based on any degree of fact of what makes community safe, how the money's being utilized by any police department. New York PD is a $10 billion department. $10 billion department for New York PD versus Los Angeles, which is a $1.2 billion department with you know over 13,000 employees. Now, New York is quite bigger. It's got about 
50,000 employees with 36,000 officers. But this very, it, it became very punitive. It became almost a punishment. We're going to take your funding because of the actions of, of officers uh, towards communities of color because of the incidents that, you know, unfortunately led, led in shootings or homicides. And so it wasn't anything that was, again, it wasn't a movement that was uh, based on any kind of study, any kind of survey about what makes community safer. It was more this punitive knee-jerk political reaction that unfortunately did not take into account what it did to communities that are in most in need. For communities like South Los Angeles, for communities of color, where response times for 911's calls were already long because of the amount of crime and because of the few officers that are out there versus a well-to-do community that has very little crime, there, there just wasn't any kind of study, anything that pointed out to, uh, you know, this being an economically a sound decision. Now, the other side of that is that folks, you know, are saying we need to fund these communities, we need to provide youth services, education, all these things. Absolutely true. But doing so by removing law enforcement and the public safety aspect of that equation, there, there, there is just no nothing scientific about that. It was just pure politics and knee-jerk reaction, in my opinion. I could agree with you with the, you know, if there was like a lack of analysis as to what the funding cuts would do. But I mean, truly, you could understand why communities across the country were emotional and upset and would want to punish police departments. And if that's through budget cuts, I mean, you could understand that. No, absolutely. No, the emotional reaction and, and the knee-jerk reaction that became that absolutely in the heat of the moment. I think what's unfortunate is after that emotional we move beyond those emotions and we look at really kind of the devastation to communities of color, to some of these most vulnerable communities, communities of high crime, as you remove, you know, officers that the community trust, because you have to reallocate them to another area to be able to kind of plug in the holes. I think it has it has a dire effect on the long term. In the short term, absolutely, it feeds into that emotional, um, and very rightfully so. I mean, the community has felt this way for a very long time. These communities of color have talked about this. I mean, we talked about 1991, Rodney King. Just in this conversation, we talked about 2015 and Baltimore and, 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 and Freddie. And five years later, here we are again talking about, you know, Mr. Floyd, right? So absolutely, I, I certainly understand that. I think that from a pragmatic standpoint, I think certainly, you know, our leadership, our, our, our politicians, our city governments, you know, really have a responsibility to be able to walk the fine line between the emotional reaction and, and really what's the issue, you know, economically, going to really help these communities in the long run, right? So I, I certainly get both parts of it. But uh, again, it, it's not a one size fits all. I, I guess this leads me into my next question of um, what type of sensitivity training do officers typically undergo? And we don't necessarily call it a sensitivity training, but that training mm -hmm. occurs day one in the police academy. And and, and how wide ranging is it? Is it race related? Is it also including, I heard you mentioned the LGBTQ community. Uh, are there cultural kind of like elements to it? What, what does it include? Absolutely. In fact, um, all of our CSP officers, when we started this program, went through a month long training, completely centered and focused on having a public health approach 
to come up with safety plans and strategy plans that meet the needs and the culture of the communities. Is it possible to fail a training? There, is it possible to fail? What, what do you mean by that? Uh, perhaps like one of the cultural or sensitivity trainings that an officer would undergo. Could they fail it? Well, there is, there's no pass or fail test. Uh, this type of training is, it's, it's based upon learning and bringing in the community themselves to have these dialogues and these discussions. Empathy, humility, understanding. Um, a lot of the officers that work within our department grew up in this community, like myself, grew up in single family homes, were victims of crimes. And so there, there isn't a pass or fail when it comes to understanding the culture. Um, what we do look at is respect and how an officer uh, treats an individual. Do you have any kind of like mandatory mental health screenings? There is mental health screenings prior to um, a, an individual even becoming a police officer. And then throughout their career? And, uh, throughout their career, there are, there are not um, consistent uh, screenings, now. Do you think maybe that could be an interesting like initiative? I think that it would be interesting depending on the purpose for the screening. Just like people that grow up in communities where there is a lot of violence, the mental health and counseling that some of the youth that we partner with and work with need to get them through from day to day is impactful and powerful. And um, it would be interesting to see the impact that the, it has on a police officer who is working in communities and helping to be a safety net to our victims, but yet take care of themselves as well. It would definitely be an interesting concept to have something that, like that done regularly, absolutely. I, I can't imagine the mental and the emotional stress, like you were you know, kind of giving it an example of a 10 hour day, that it sounds staggering. Obviously I'm, I'm not in law enforcement, but probably just one of those incidents. And I'd be like, okay, I think I'm done <laughs> I'm done for my shift for the day. It sounds incredible. And um, I, I think, you know, it might be beneficial to have some regular type of mental health screening just to make sure that the officer's okay. Uh, because a lot of times when we have some of these more horrific cases, we hear many officers say they felt threatened and um, they thought, you know, whatever was the case was a valid threat. And perhaps if there was some type of, you know, mental health kind of uh, screen for them, maybe they would have approached uh, their situation different or the, you know, the accident different. Do folks, I guess, in law enforcement discuss police brutality issues as much as folks on the other side? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of a complex question, right? Do folks discuss it amongst themselves as officers? Yeah. Do, do, do civilians? No, no. I mean, like in inside of the police department, are folks? You know, I, I certainly couldn't speak to what law enforcement, what officers, sworn folks speak about. You know, my experiences with law enforcement have, you know, have been frankly limited to my ten years with this community safety partnership 
I used to work for the housing authority. So, and just to lay context to that, um, which is relevant, earlier when you asked, has any funding increased? One of the clarifications that I want to make is that the Community Safety Partnership Program, which started at four public housing sites, started in 2011. Funding was provided by the housing authority to start the program because it was a collaboration between LAPD and the housing authority. And the housing authority provided funding to um, promote the officers, to make this a promotional assignment for the officers so they would apply and also for overtime to address obviously public safety in some of these communities that had you know some of the highest incidents of crime. And then also for programming to engage through community engagement, youth programming to support the communities with funding for events that would provide a different context for the community and law enforcement to engage with each other. The program has since expanded to eight housing authority sites. So as the program has expanded to a different site, the housing authority has also expanded their funding to cover their share of the cost for the program at that specific site. And it was a five-year MOU. And then that was increased. And as of recently, uh, what's gone through the city council, uh, which garnered some attention in this environment that we're living in right now of, you know, defund the police or uh, reallocating resources. There was some consternation from the community, from some of the advocates out there that are part of this narrative of limiting resources or no more money for police who um, were against the funding that the housing authority was including in the renewal MOU. So that was not a new resource. It was not necessarily additional funding being given to the CSP program. It was a continuum for another five years of the existing program that's been around for 10 years. Does that make sense? So it wasn't a it wasn't an increasing of any sort because the, the base amount that the housing authority uh, has contributed to this program has remained the same for 10 years. I mean, had I been involved in those negotiations, I would have adjusted them for, for inflation, right? And for cost sure. of living, but yeah. the amounts are the same. So that answers that question. In regards to discussion within law enforcement, I will tell you that what I have been privy to in the last 10 years, that I've been a part of the CSP program, you know, both when I worked for the Housing Authority and as of recently with my um, assignment to LEPD now under Chief Tangerides, the officers in the program absolutely have discussion about engagement, about community engagement, about working with the community. I've had some very strong conversations about how these officers have really taken on the role of the guardians of the community. The angst and the powerlessness that they feel sometimes being in a community that has such a high you know, influenced by the gangs that has, you know, so, so much criminal activity that can't all be addressed immediately. Um, there's angst with the court system and some of these officers will go out there and they will arrest, you know, folks that are committing crimes. And these folks are on the street before they even finish their paperwork. So there's a lot of angst out there for what the officers deal with boots on the ground in these communities that essentially have repeated the cycle of poverty for the last 50 years or so. And that have, you know, five generations deep of folks living in public housing in the cycle of poverty, again, you know, subject to the failure of all these different institutions, education, housing, uh, you know, uh, workforce development, um, just the failure to be able to support these families as a lot of these institutions were defunded. When I started with the Housing Authority in 2011, 
I was the resident services manager and I was in charge of all the grants, federal grants, uh, state grants, county grants and city grants that were coming in for supporting residents that live in public housing. And when I started in 2011, I had a department of about 50 folks. We had 25 uh, part-time workers that were community members that we would hire as interns and we had another 20 staff. By the time I left the department, almost 10 years later, that federal funding and that budget had decreased from 6 million to a few hundred thousand and maybe three employees. So when you talk about programming and you talk about the safety net, you know, that's been decreasing in funding again for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And what's left again are these communities that are completely disenfranchised and where now you have a young 23 year old, 24 year old officer who's responding to a call. And when he shows up and there's chaos, he has to make a, he or she has to make a determination in a matter of five seconds on something that has been brewing in that community and that family with that child, with that gang for generations. And he has to do it right and he can't make a mistake. And he has to protect life and property and he has to get it right and he has to de-escalate when he's being cussed at and when he's being spit at and when he's being yelled at and there's a camera on him to make sure he makes the right decision and is able to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. In those communities, there is no such thing as a good guy or a bad guy. They're indistinguishable. And the problem with law enforcement, when you keep throwing that officer into that context, into that cycle of poverty, is that at some point, they all become the bad guys. They all become the bad guys. And that is the problem that happens. So a program like CSP is as much for those officers as it is for the community. It's about looking at the officers, providing for their health. It's about understanding that at whatever point somebody decides to put on a uniform, and I say this as a civilian, not a police officer, and I say this because I understand that context, that at some point, every person that puts on a uniform, everybody that puts on a badge, I really don't think that they left their home that day believing and knowing that seven hours later, they were going to have their knee on the neck of a man taking their life. I, I'm, I hope not. Something broke there, right? Yeah. Something broke there. How did we get there? How did we get there? And that's part of what's also happening right now with the CSP program. We're looking at officers. We're having these discussions. We're having the mental health assessments. We're having the training to make sure that we catch those officers before they kind of go off that cliff, if you will, right? I like to end these conversations asking the guests what makes you hopeful or optimistic about the future. Could each of you give me something? You know, when I started with the Housing Authority, um, I've spent 10 years with the city of Los Angeles, uh, five years prior to that as a second grade teacher in Pacoima back in the late 90s. Then I spent 10 years with the city of Los Angeles, mostly in UCLA and Watts, doing uh, the youth development program, which was a uh, youth leadership program, jobs program, summer jobs. Uh, when I started in the Housing Authority, I was at Jordan Downs and I'll be a little older. I was I was a father. I had a one-year-old. And going to the community before CSP, like Jordan Downs, where the work center was, I was a manager for resident services station at Jordan Downs. And, you know, when I would tell folks what my new job was, folks didn't, a lot of folks who were not aware of the projects or the housing developments, as we call them now, but uh, formerly known as projects, they didn't know what they were. They didn't even know where they were in Los Angeles for, you know, I'm from the east side there of, so I would tell them, did you see uh, Training Day? Did you see the movie Training Day? Yes, we saw, okay, those communities where he went in and where Denzel Washington, I said, that's Imperial Courts. 
That's where I work. That's the level of crime and gang influence. When I went to Jordan Downs, was striking. I remember we would have to lock down because when there was shots fired, uh, we would lock down. Um, it was just a community under siege. And that was Jordan Downs that you had Nickerson and Imperial. And I remember I had a one-year-old daughter and I would go into these communities, these kind of forsaken communities in a lot of ways because, you know, folks didn't care about the poor brown and black folks that lived in the projects. That's federal funding. That's a federal agency. That's not the state. That's not the city. That's not the county. Just don't go near those areas, right? And I would see the children and it would break my heart. I'd feel a level of guilt. Listen, these communities in the past, when we went into Nicholson, Jordan, Imperial, these communities were forsaken. We we look at the silent majority, which is 80 to 90% of the folks who live there who are law-abiding, who are older, who are immigrants, who are under siege. And they're being victimized twice, once by the criminal element of the gang, and they were victimized a second time by the heavy-handed approach of law enforcement coming in and burning it, torturing it, because they're all project people, they're all throwaways, they're all gangsters. And they would come in, and they would cast the net, and they would grab anybody. And then they would leave. And so the silent majority of this community, these kids, they were victim, being victimized twice. Now they have recourse. Now they have connection with the officers. Now they see the same officers day in, day out. They see them at the gym. They see them at the community meeting. They see them at the rack meeting. They see them at the toy giveaway. They see them giving away turkeys. And they have their phone numbers. They can call them when they're afraid, when they need help, when there's crime, when something's happening. It's, it's, there's hope. There's hope. I, I, I will tell you a story. I was working in Southeast Division in Watts, the community that I grew up in and have a huge heart for and grew, born and raised in, in South Los Angeles and uh, proud to represent my city and work in this capacity. And I got a phone call um, during the height of the civil unrest from a community member in Watts who called and said, we are calling to check on you we're calling to check on our police officers that work in Southeast. And we wanna make sure that there's no harm done to your police station or your officers. We have the 65 riots. We had civil unrest after 92. We don't want this in our community. We're going to keep it safe. We wanna make sure you're safe. They wanted to drive their vehicles down to my police station and park in front to make sure that no one harmed it. And that is because of the trust and the relationships, the mutual respect and the accountability that we have and how hard we worked to get that accountability. And when there were different groups and activists attempting to go into some of our community safety partnership um, areas, our community told them to leave. We don't want this here. We're, we are working with our law enforcement and our community to make things better. We don't want the tension. We don't want the rhetoric. We want to continue moving in the direction of making it safe for our kids and creating a safe space uh, that we can come together and feel healthy and enjoy the relationships that we do have with law enforcement. What gives me hope is the pain and the cry across this country for trust policing, for transparency, for training, and the fact that law enforcement agencies are hearing that and listening and adjusting and changing. 
like the Los Angeles Police Department has done for decades now, gives me hope. And we're back. And I'm back with a little bit of help. Today, let me break this down. I've Lauren from the production team. Can't wait to. Good. How are you? Can't wait to discuss some of the things the LAPD said in their interview. I know a lot of the things they said will probably bring many of our listeners pause when they hear them. So we're here to kind of discuss those. And and discuss we shall. Yes. (laughs) So it's really important to tell everyone that uh, a little soon after the interview, there was a report released by an independent council. It was created by a motion that was adopted by the city council in Los Angeles. And so it was released March 10th of 2021. And um, it basically reviews the police department's behavior or response to the George Floyd and BLM protests in LA last summer. I want to use it kind of as a reference point to review the answers that the LAPD just gave me in the interview that you guys just heard. And I I think just from the start, obviously, policing is very difficult work. It's strenuous. It's tough stuff. There are folks who are bad and we need you know, some type of protection for the community. And, and it, it, I'm not going on like a police bashing rant. Right. It's definitely a hard job. We're it's a hard totally job. acknowledging that. Right. It could be better if we really dealt with some of the key points that were brought up in the interview. And, yeah. Kind of like um, acknowledging mistakes, learning from them, changing your behavior is definitely what we would like to see. Right. I feel like police are here to stay. I don't think we are going to get rid of police departments across the country. I don't even know if that's like a safe goal. It sounds a little scary. But I do think we need some radical reform as far as training. And I think we need some really, really great solutions as far as wellness and mental health preparedness of the officers like improving their mental health and the Mm -hmm. way that they respond to mental health of uh, like mental health issues in the communities that they are policing. Yeah, definitely. One on, on, you know, on one side, if they're not in a great state mentally, how can they protect the community that, you know, they they've sworn an oath to. Yeah, they can't. They can't and definitely not effectively. And then on the other side, like you're saying, Lauren, police probably are not the best prepared folks to respond to mental health emergencies. Definitely. And especially if their mental health is bad, then it's just, that's not going to go well. They're not mental health experts. They're not psychologists, psychiatrists, anything like that. They're not trained in that. That's a key thing. Keep it in mind that we're going to use this report as kind of like a reference point I think we're going to probably refer back and forth to it between the interview and this report. And right. I think we can start with kind of like the main topic that we had here, which was 
defunding the police. Uh, I asked Mr. Lopez, what does defund the police mean to you? And he is saying it's punitive and it's not based on any type of analysis and that people are just trying to punish the police force. And, and so while I think I acknowledge that if you're going to take resources or you know, slash the budget of the LAPD, yeah, you might want to kind of like analyze what that's going to change, what's going right. to Right, and like what will actually make a community safer when you are right. kind of changing the budget around. Right. You don't want to just like take an arbitrary number. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, all right, now make do with what you have left. This is your punishment. Yeah. There's that. But there also is kind of like an element of punishment to it. Right. It um, needs to be punitive when you're doing things wrong and making mistakes, which everyone makes mistakes, but making those mistakes repeatedly and not learning from them, like it, it might have to be punitive if that's what's going to make a difference and make the community change safer. behavior. I, I was also going to say, just to reference the report really quickly, there's been several instances in the past where the LAPD has wrongfully responded to protest in Los Angeles. And there's been lawsuits filed against the LAPD, and they settled uh, these lawsuits. And some of the requirements in these settlements demanded that the department would <laughs> undergo extensive training for certain mm-hmm. procedures and certain tactics. And this report that's reviewing last summer's protests, it's saying that the LAPD did not hold up their side of the settlement requirements because they were not doing these trainings. And it's like a recommendation from from the report that the LAPD starts to listen to the requirements that are in the settlements. I don't understand how a police department could ignore a requirement of a settlement that it signed. Yeah, it's kind of like not wanting to admit you've made a mistake and then not wanting and if you don't admit that you've made a mistake, then you're like, oh, I don't need to train because yeah, I didn't make yeah. a mistake. Like if you think you did not did nothing wrong, but obviously if there was a settlement, then you definitely did. And then especially if there is a requirement in the settlement to initiate mm-hmm. this training and then they just decide not to, obviously, I mean, I think in like yeah. the normal, in the normal world, that'd be like a breach of the settlement. Right. So I think uh, when there's instances like this, when it's like, oh, actually the LAPD is breaching a requirement in a settlement, I could understand why folks would want to take punitive action. Very, very tough stuff. Let's move on to the next topic of sensitivity training. When asking Deputy Chief Denegridis about sensitivity training, she spoke with me and spoke at length and we couldn't include it all in the interview or on this released episode that there are a host of different trends culturally um mm-hmm. based on just like anything you can think of they right. they're there one of the questions i asked was is there any type of test is that what happens when an officer fails a training And her response really gave me pause (laughs) when she said, no, there's no pass fail. (laughs) Yeah, you can't fail a sensitivity training. 
which I think is ridiculous. Uh, I think it probably should be pass fail. What's the point of the training? Yeah. If like after a training on respecting like various communities, minorities, you still like have those prejudices and right. look down on those communities and treat them differently. You probably deserve to fail that training. Right. Maybe need to learn more about how to be a decent human being. Maybe go through that training again. Maybe if you fail that training, be taken off the field. Yeah. Like the whole point of sensitivity training is kind of admitting that you do have pre- prejudices and recognizing them so that you can act differently. Like it's hard to kind of get rid of your prejudices once you have them, but it can be done and you can at least admit that to yourself so that you can kind of change your actions. Um, so if you, at the end of the training, don't want to admit that you maybe have prejudices against certain communities of people that uh, look different than you, then you probably should have failed the training. Shouldn't have just gotten a check mark for attending, but not necessarily passing or learning anything even. I was, yeah, really taken aback by that. Yeah. And then I'll uh, just refer back to this report again. There were numerous instances that were listed where the officers last summer did not have the proper training for the weapons that they were using for crowd control. Mm-hmm. What? That should have happened for sure before just yeah. like letting them out with batons into crowds of people. Like you should probably know how they're meant to be used as like right. a less lethal weapon. Yeah. For sure. Like, you did not have the proper training for like, to use the weapons for crowd control. Are you are, are you crazy? Are you kidding? Yep. That's like what happened in Minneapolis with Dante Wright. How like the police officer mixed up her taser and her gun. Like if she had had significant and extensive training with her taser, she probably would have realized that it felt very different because it's thicker, lighter, more plasticky than like a solid gun is. We're talking um, about vast differences yeah, in weight. It, right. It's like a Nerf gun versus a regular gun. Like mm-hmm. if you had had practice, even with your gun or with your taser, like you probably would have instantly realized that not only are they um, kept on opposite hips. So it's like, how does that mistake happen? And it's probably due to like a lack of training. But Lauren, um, there's also this part. She's been on the force for 26 years. Right. So she feasibly should be trained, one would think. Well, I mean, I imagine you take out the taser and your gun every day at the end of your shift. Right. You fill them regularly. Yes. Right. Maybe no, daily. That... <laughs> you... One would think. Yeah. I, I know like the difference between my keys and my phone. And my, yep. <laughs> like, uh, crazy. One of the weapons um, that they used for the protests last summer and the report, <laughs> the report does mention that, yeah, they did receive training for this particular weapon, but it was two hours worth of training over the course of a 10 hour class. Right. So not enough. So there's that. Yeah. And then we're shocked and we go into outrage and, all you know, these horrendous incidents happen. Folks are not trained. They're not trained. It's incredible. Two hours of training to use like a deadly weapon over the course of a 10-hour class day. And you get that yeah, like and, once. Yeah. And I think the report um, even touched on how like 
the expertise and the skills you need to manage a peaceful right. protest yeah. and like a protest that turns violent are very different. Right. And that the lack of experience in that it area like really, really impacted their ability to control the protests and yeah. prevent chaos and violence that ultimately occurred. And so that's like the report really touched on how the lack of training definitely like led to how poorly things went. Right. There's I there's like two guns. I think the one where they got the two hours worth of training. I think that one you you need to be like very very precise, or you yes. run the risk of of hitting someone else, and obviously that's horrendous. And then the other gun where you don't have to be so precise. The bullet is like sand or something, so it's it's not lethal. I I obviously would want to have both of them used as a last resort. But to know that perhaps there are officers on the field, on the streets right now without proper training or two hours worth of training, that's, I think our, that's our, petrifying. The whole idea of this whole episode is that more training to be a police officer yeah. definitely needed. More yeah. mental health training, yeah. more peaceful protest training, more non-lethal weapon training, yeah. more sensitivity training. Amen. <laughs> Yep. Yes. More training overall. Yep. I'm happy you brought up mental health because the report has a full section on wellness. I was really interested in, in this and then I was interested in it during the interview about the officer's state of mind, where they're at when they're out in the field. Because a lot of times when these really horrendous incidents happen, the officers say they were stressed or they say um, something went wrong or the officer, they weren't in like in a good headspace sometimes. You can't blame them. Like I know if I experienced like one of the things that they go through during their long shift, I would not be the person that you'd want on another scene of another really difficult event. Like immediately afterwards. No, like, I mean, I can't blame them, which is why I definitely was shocked when in the interview they said that they only have mental health screenings at the beginning of their career as a police officer, like when they're hired, but not at all consistently throughout their career as a police officer over so many years of working long days. Which is mind blowing. Yeah. Seeing things that like would wreck anyone else and then expecting to just go on with the rest of their day. Like that, that's really hard. And I think they should definitely have those mental health screenings. And I think that would prevent a lot of actions that come from like not the best decision making from being like sleep deprived or kind of going through something or just still like thinking about event that happened the day week month year before just can't be good for your mental health at all well police officers are super brave and that's not the career path for me and Mm -hmm. probably for the vast majority of human beings at the end of the day they're still human they are affected by their crime scenes they're affected by you know the the cases that they're following we should care about their wellness especially if they're the ones who are trusted and counted on to kind of help victims going through these tough things and Mm. like kind of help their ensure that their mental health is okay that's really hard to do like when your mental health is not good Just reading from the top of this wellness section, many officers worked long hours during the protests without relief and were sleep deprived throughout the protests. Right. And it's like this 
lack of sleep, not great because these officers were trusting them to like make critical decisions as right. events unfold rapidly and things change. And if you are sleep deprived, you cannot make decisions probably as fast or as well as you could if you were able to get that sleep and rest and talk to someone. So yeah, it definitely affects like the safety of the officers and the safety of the community that they're uh, serving. The report continues. It is imperative that when officers are subjected to dangerous conditions and provocations, they be at their best with the patience and judgment necessary to perform professionally. You can't Mm -hmm. probably do that if you're just sleep deprived. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially important with the LAPD one, maybe do some mental health screenings, mental health Mm -hmm. trainings, offer mental health supports, whether that be through counseling or therapy, as well as like kind of ensuring during these protests that will come up, have happened in the past, will happen in the future. Uh, kind of make sure that we have like protocol in place to make sure that officers are being switched out and relieved um, just so that they can go home, get rest and be at their best when protecting the community. Police are facing things every day that are probably quite traumatic, heavily impactful. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a tough ask to require periodic mental health screenings. Yeah. I mentioned this actually during the interview. I don't think it made it into the final cut. Deputy Chief McGrees says something to the effect of, oh, I think that's a good idea. And I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah. It's like, you haven't thought about this yeah, before? Yeah, I think, I think that's a fantastic idea. So get to it. Um, the last thing we talked about in the interview was the question surrounding, do people in law enforcement, police officers, discuss police brutality among themselves? Like, Do they talk about casually or do they're like, are they shocked as we are when we hear about these things? Are they outraged? With (laughs) like the countless names like Dante Wright, Karen Mm. Rosario, Adam Mm. Toledo, Floyd, like are they as outraged as we are? And I think something more interesting than maybe what they talked about in the interview was that the Derek Chauvin trial, this is one of the first times that we've seen police officers testifying against one of their own to be like, no, what he did was wrong. Like he should have never- One of them is from this. the LAPD, actually. Right, right, yeah. And so I think this is like one of the first times that they're kind of speaking out, which again, shocked me because they can't have all been right forever. So we just, right. yeah, wondered whether or not they discussed it amongst themselves and to what extent. I, I feel like the answers we got, they were not what I was expecting. I'll say it like yeah. that. Um, I wish they would have been a little bit more open. Yeah, because they said, yeah, they talked about why we're getting punished for things not happening in our city. <laughs> like, wait, yeah, what? Yeah, it's like, do you talk about... Like, that's the part? Maybe you did wrong. <laughs> that's the bit you're talking about? All in all, there's a lot of work to be done in reforming modern policing. I talk about in the intro how... Uh, Police in, in America has been around since the 1600s, and it has like these sometimes pretty dark beginnings. But we definitely need to modernize our police force, maybe look at some other major nations, see how they yeah. handle policing. There are um, a lot of them that their police officers don't even have guns. Exactly. We need to really, really rethink this uh, because it's, it's scary. It's scary to think that for some folks, the idea of 
interacting with a police officer might be like a life or death situation. That's scary. That's not mm-hmm. okay. We need some yeah, police like, reform. Yeah, when like you can't be sure that a police officer is going to behave rationally in your interaction with them, it's hard to like stay calm and behave rationally yourself. Right. And maybe that police officer is sleep deprived. They might be. Maybe they just came from a crazy accident. Or maybe... Yeah, maybe they have PTSD from something they saw years ago. Like, right. If they don't have mental health screenings for right. a year, then how do we even know? So I, I more of the story, I think, Lauren, like you were saying earlier, it's training. Training. Mm-hmm. Maybe and some mental I'm, health screenings. Mental health screenings, for sure. And I think even police officers would appreciate that. I don't think they yeah. want to go into situations that they're not trained for. No, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Maybe that's why they're reacting the way they're reacting. Because yeah. they're just not trained. Yeah, you're like on edge if you're going into a situation that you're not comfortable in, right. which is not how you want the police officer coming to help you. You don't want them to be on edge. Right. Why can't this be fixed? I think that's like the main motive behind defund the police. And kind of as we talked about in the beginning, like I'm not sure completely getting rid of the police is the best thing yeah, for the safety of yeah. our communities, but I'm probably gonna say no to that one. Yeah, but like I'm a little scary. But like I know uh Mr. Lopez was thought felt very punitive. And I'm like, parts of it, like it does need to be punitive when you keep making mistakes that we can learn from and by being better trained and uh all of that stuff. Um like I understand why people are fed up with the police uh, when people from their communities uh, are getting killed. Right. Well, that was our episode on a little bit of tracing the history of policing in America and what defunding the police means to the LAPD. Probably different than what it means to us. (laughs) Yeah. But thanks for listening in. This is the Delve. And Lauren and I will see you uh, see you Sunday. Bye, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.